Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, being the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live and for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on your Times Radio app where you can listen back to old shows as well and you can listen to the Redbox podcast or maybe that's where you're listening to it in which case you don't need to know about the app. Very good. Right, coming up on today's episode I've been speaking to Sir Richard Dearlove former head of MI6 about how you get a tap on the shoulder to become a spy what he thinks about Britain's relations with Russia and China and Donald Trump if he comes back as the presidency really interesting chat coming up with him in just a moment but first as ever we'll kick off with The Columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's Thursday, so we say hello to Manveen Rana. Hello. And this week, someone called Matthew is Matthew Powis. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Uh, good to have you. Good to have you both here. Um, let's talk about migration. Uh, Rishi Sunak has uh, flown all the way to Japan to get in a pickle back home. Uh, he uh, has backed away uh, from the manifesto promise to cut immigration below 2019 levels uh, and appeared to blame Boris Johnson for the record number of migrants coming to the UK. Uh, so he's uh, he was asked several times on the plane to Japan uh, and pressed on it. He said, I inherited some numbers I want to bring down. As if it was all uh, someone else's fault. We're all a long way from David Cameron's promise uh, to uh, to really cut the numbers. We would like to see net immigration in the tens of thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands. I don't think that's unrealistic. That's the sort of figure it okay. was in the 1990s. And I think we should see that again. So, I mean, that's tens of thousands. We're a long way from what it was, was five, six hundred thousand last year, last time round. They think it might be up to 700,000 when we get the figures next week, heading towards a million. Uh, what, what's the correct answer to the question when people say to Rishi Sunak, what are you going to do about migration, Matthew? I think the answer he gave is a good start, which is it wasn't his promise. And when he blames Boris Johnson, I think he probably blames Boris Johnson for making an unrealistic promise in the first place. But he's got to go on to point out the various sectors of our economy, care workers, NHS workers, all kinds of fruit pickers, all kinds of people without whom... uh, our industry and agriculture in places would just collapse to point these out and say to people well do you do you want a british agriculture to collapse do you, do you want the nhs to run out of workers do you want care homes to run out of of workers i think if he makes the case carefully and honestly 
then I think a lot of people would understand. Matthew, he was the Chancellor when uh, the Tories made that promise in the 2019 election. He wasn't an entirely innocent bystander. No, that's perfectly true. And in a sense, everyone who is in the Cabinet then is a little bit complicit to it. But he wasn't Prime Minister. And as as Chancellor, I don't know whether he, he could have stopped Boris Johnson making that, that pledge. That yeah. Boris Johnson tends just to spray these things out. <laughs> what do you think, man? I mean, clearly this is going to be a big debate next week when we get these figures, which are like to show a record high in, in terms of net migration. Um, clearly... There's a there's a row going on in the cabinet between Swella Bravman. I think it's Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, taking a, a different view about the need need for migrants. What do you think? Which side of the debate do you come down on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's really difficult for the cabinet. You know, you've got this pressure from Suella Bravman, you know, that sort of ERG wing of the party. Um, and I just think it's quite ironic because you know we are going to get a, get up to about seven and a half. Um, I think about 700,000 we're looking at, which is two and a half times the figures in 2019 when they were supposed to be falling. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think I don't think a huge proportion of those are coming from small boats, which is the only part of net migration that and, you know, the prime minister is willing to talk about. He's, you know, he wants to go after the small boats, send people to Rwanda. He's not talking about the migration that is being approved. And I think for the ERG and for people like Suella Bravman, it's it's just difficult because they've always practiced this very sort of extreme form of politics and they're going to have to learn the word trade-off because, you know, they they fought for the hardest version of Brexit. We were told the biggest benefit of that version of Brexit would be trade deals with places like India and you'll only get those trade deals if you agree to more net migration. That was always the case. And it just sort of feels like it's that moment where uh, they're going to have to face up to the realities of that. You know, I mean, part part of it is, as you know, Jeremy Hunt is very worried, obviously, about the the economy, plugging holes in the economy. They've just made a promise on food security, which they won't be able to match unless they sort of massively subsidise farming to pay much higher wages to get people from from Britain to agree to do these jobs, because at the moment they're just not filling those gaps. So, you know, for for, for the government, there's a trade-off. They've made all these promises on the economy, on food security, which they can't match with current levels of migration or, you know, with, with the falling levels of migration. And for the ERG, you know, I don't know how they make Brexit work if they don't accept that that will naturally mean a higher level of net migration. Yeah, but, but, sorry, go on, Matthew. There is an argument the other way, which, though I think I wouldn't subscribe to it, one should put, and that is that um, if British employers paid the appropriate rates for some of the jobs that we're importing cheap labour to do, then we wouldn't have this problem. Now, you don't probably don't want to be putting up pay rates at, at a time of high inflation, but it, there is a longer-term underlying problem, which is that British employers have tended to rely on cheap labour, first from the EU, Romania, Bulgaria, etc., uh, and, and, and now from the rest of the world. And is, is that the right way to run an economy? I'd, I'd agree with that. But I think in farming, for example, the margins are so small that you need a massive shift and you would probably have to subsidise that shift for that shift to happen. You'd have to subsidise the industry because if they were to try and raise wages without it, without a subsidy, a lot of farmers would just go bust. Yeah, um, yeah, they would. Uh, but, but, but one might argue that uh, large parts of British agriculture are inherently unprofitable and uh, we, we might as well stop trying to grow apples if we can't afford to pay the people to pick them. Well, let's let's move on. We'll find out. We'll, we'll find out next week what those figures are, and no doubt there'll be much more much more debate about it. Um, uh, from from pick, picking picking fruit to peerages, Matthew, you want to put people you don't agree with in the House of Lords? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I wrote about this in the yeah. Times this this week. Uh, I, I'm no fan of the Daily Mail, and uh, Paul Dacre seems in many ways a, a ferocious, terrifying person to me, the former editor of the Daily Mail. But the, newspapers like the Daily Mail don't invent the strands of public opinion that they represent. In, in many ways, I, I, I think that, that they simply channel them. They, they simply give a voice to them. And we often, I think we liberals, if, if I can call myself a liberal, because we don't want to criticise the people who read the Daily Mail, we don't want to criticise the the, the the lower middle class and the kinds of people who, who like rather sensational, rather right-wing tabloid newspapers. We don't want to say we think they're stupid or any or uneducated or, or anything rude like that. We criticise the paper. And I'd like to see Paul Dacre in the House of Lords. I'd like to hear his voice in the House of Lords. I would like to have heard Enoch Powell's voice in the House of Lords. I'd, I'd like to have heard Peter Tatchell's voice in the House of Lords. We've got too many drongos, time servers, party donors, uh, redundant members of parliament uh, being sent there and, and too few interesting voices. What, what, what do you think, Manvi? Which, which controversialist would you put in the House of Lords? <laughs> Instead of the drongos, it's um, a great word. Well, I know, great great description. Um, I mean, I hate to disagree with Matthew, but, um, you know, I totally agree that I don't think donors should be there. I don't think the sons of Russian oligarchs who are known to have been members of the KGB when Russia is a, an acute threat to our security, apparently, should really be there. Um, but I, I'm not sure I would fill it with with controversialists for the sake of that. I think with with people like Paul Dacre um, and even Nigel Farage, who I know Matthew mentioned in, in his yes. piece, there's sort of a slight chicken and egg problem where I think you're right, they do definitely channel a strain of thought that exists in the country that often gets ignored. But I wonder how much they also help to create that strain. You know, with the, with the Daily Mail, it does channel something that is there, but then it reinforces it every day with more and more shouty pieces, which sort of takes what might have started off as a niggle and turns it into a proper wedge that often ends up dividing society. So I sort of, I slightly worry that it also creates some of that fury I mean, you know, for example, with with Brexit, I remember interviewing some of the the bad boys of Brexit who helped to make it happen. They were very proud of the fact that they managed to make people care about it so much. You know, it's divided the country now in a way that we're not sure how it'll ever come together again. But when they first started off, it wasn't even the top ten of things that people were worried about. Yeah. So I sort of think we've got to wonder how much these people feed some of those strains of thought rather than just reflecting them so for that reason I, I wouldn't want to amplify their voices necessarily I sort of think I'd want the House of Lords to reward people who are coming up with solutions for problems in society rather than potentially but isn't, it, isn't there a case Mavi that actually it turned out Nigel Farage was on the side of more than half the people in the country and if he was if he had a proper if he was in the House of Lords he might have been challenged properly by the other people that actually you know going around fog-awning in the pubs of Britain uh, was probably easier than him having to, you know, sit in the House of Lords and think about the process of legislation and how things would work practically. Matt, is your argument that people just don't listen to people in the House of Lords? No, no, the opposite. <laughs> no, the opposite. Actually, <laughs> the, the, quite often uh, people who go into politics actually doing yeah. it suddenly discover, oh, it's quite complicated, this. But, yeah, the Lib Dems found... ...had been in the European Parliament. He knew about a lot of the complications that we're now facing and coming out 
So I, I I'm not sure that would have yeah. you know changed his his view of things or made him think think through an argument that would help with legislation. I sort of think the House of Lords at the moment is so big. It's you know second only to the Chinese Parliament, which, given the size of our country, is bonkers. You sort of want it to be a chamber that works. I'd rather there were sort of more, you know, more experts in there. People who understand science and technology, for example, because you know increasingly we've got lots of bills coming through about yeah. the online world, about tech and AI that a lot of people in Parliament don't really understand. It's you know it's a bit like getting a, a high court judge to to judge Britain's Got Talent. You just think, God, you're death. <laughs> And so I'd much rather sort of filled the house of all the people who actually understood this oh, stuff. It sounds, sounds a bit dull to me, man. But you want people to, <laughs> no, to, to I love know, it. I'm sorry. Love I'm it. sorry. Now, I don't want to big, be a sucker. Now the big for question is: all is all of this? Is all of this after the excitement of getting the freedom of the city of London? Is it all of this a pitch for Matthew Paris to go into the House of Lords? No, I think no. <laughs> you see, I'd Absolutely not. Paris was in there. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I might have had that opportunity. Uh, I definitely wouldn't want to take it. Absolutely not. And I, I accept almost everything that Manreen has said there, but that there is a, a little bit of a danger with the argument that by letting somebody say something, uh, you are not just hearing the opinion, but you're helping the opinion to be amplified. Because taken to its logical conclusion, it becomes an argument against free speech. Yeah, and actually, if you only put in people that don't really offend anyone, you end up yeah. with a load of sort of mushy, vanilla yeah. centrists. I just sort of worry that with with um, newspapers like the Daily Mail, it's not just that it's reflecting that point of view; it's that actually it isn't great on free speech. It never really reflects any other, and so I think that's actually one of my worries too. Yeah, well, we'll see, we'll see, because yeah, it sounds as if Paul Dacre isn't going to the House of Lords, so. Um, Let's put more people who read The Guardian in the House of Lords. You know, I, I personally think we should probably get rid of the whole thing. But that's probably an entirely uh, different conversation. Um, uh, we should probably speak about Liz Truss, because otherwise uh, there was no point of going all the way to Taiwan if we don't talk about it. Uh, this was her warning of the dangers of China's involvement in the West and the Ukraine conflict. We know what happens to the environment or to world health under totalitarian regimes that don't tell the truth. You can't believe a word they say. They have already made their choice about their strategy. The only choice we have is do we appease and accommodate that strategy or do we take action now to prevent conflict? Now, uh, there's always been lots of debate about whether or not Liz Truss should be doing that. Her former deputy, uh, when she was probably, the former deputy prime minister, Therese Coffey, was asked, should we basically take any notice of Liz Truss? This is what she told ITV. Dare I say it? Uh, Liz had her time as Prime Minister. <laughs> Not a ringing endorsement, man, really. <laughs> <laughs> No, God. If that's your best friend, you're in a world of trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what was she doing there, though? I think, you know, for the government, it is a massive embarrassment. There was a great moment where the Chinese sort of described it as a, a dangerous political stunt, which I think is a really good description of Liz Truss's entire time in the pen. But it's only dangerous but, if anyone thinks she carries any weight at all. <laughs> Um, what, what do you think, Matthew? Should we take any notes of her? I think it's completely inappropriate for to, her to make remarks like that as a, a former prime minister. Of course, we should be wary 
of the uh, the People's Republic of China. Of course, we should be wary of the Chinese Communist Party, but shouting at them, calling them liars, um, accusing them of um, infecting the whole world, which may be true, is is not 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 just useless. It, it it's it's actually counterproductive. <laughs> what we should be doing is speaking in friendly terms, respectful terms to and about the People's Republic, and quietly making absolutely sure that we don't depend on them for anything that we need. And I, th- I think is what Rishi Sunak is trying to do. Well, we'll yeah, see. We'll see if they take any notice in Beijing. So inflammatory. OK, now let's talk about this. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I went down to the House Department and uh, to see the new Liz Trust Toby jug that was on sale in the, in the shop there. Well, uh, producer Dom on the show put in an FOI request to find out who's selling best. Uh, so this is the league table. Liz Truss has sold 16 uh, Toby Jugs. The same number as Andrew Bonar Law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, Boris Johnson is the biggest seller at 296. Then Winston Churchill on 174. Margaret Thatcher on 123. Then Theresa May. Oh, no, then uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. Uh, Theresa May, Howard Wilson, David Cameron, uh, John Major, uh, and then uh, yeah, not many, not many Stanley Baldwin's uh, uh, sold. Uh, has to be said. Uh, so this is from uh, the beginning of July uh, to uh, this month. At the beginning of July 2019 to this month. So what we thought we'd do is uh, speak to an expert in these matters, uh, Antiques Roadshow uh, expert Stephen Moore's on the line. Hi, Stephen. Good morning. Um, have you admired these ceramics? Um, well, I, I'm showing you the picture of the Liz Trust one now, and I'm, I'm getting all the fears, I'm afraid. She's rather stern-looking. <laughs> now, I think these sell for about £30, uh, each one of these. We've worked, sort of worked out, if they've sold 16 of Liz Trust and Andrew Bernard there's obviously 16 completists who probably bought all of them. Is it is that a good investment, do you think, £30? In, like, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, if I came on the Antiques Roadshow with a Liz Trust Toby jug, would, would, the, would the crowd be gasping as you gave me the valuation? Well, we'd be very polite to you, I can say that much. <laughs> would if, if, if I could predict the future, I, I would be zooming in from my yacht, and sadly I'm not. So, um, But, you know, if you, if you look at the ones that have sold, I mean, Boris looks like a Toby Jugger to begin with. Um, but, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Winston Churchill, they're all kind of iconic figures. Yeah. Do, that, that, that's what counts. Do you get a lot of political memorabilia on the Antiques Roadshow? Yeah, I mean, Britain's got an amazing tradition of kind of poking fun at politics. So um, going back 300 years. So, yes, it, it turns up all the time. Um, uh, Matthew, is it, what, what, would, you, would you get a Liz Truss Toby jug? Have you got any top oh, political? Yes. You must have some great political memorabilia. Well, I did collect uh, all five uh, all five of Labour's manifesto pledges in 1997, but most of them are broken now. You know, it was tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree a, a, about the Boris Johnson thing because his flying hair just doesn't work in 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 a ceramic That's true. context. It needs to be knitted uh, or something. I, I would I would go for Liz Truss. Ironically, I, I wonder what the ironic purchases of some of these uh, the, the, these Toby jugs have been, and some have been much much better than others. Uh, David Cameron wasn't quite right. Gordon Brown didn't much, look much like Gordon yeah. Brown. Winston Churchill was very good. Whereas nobody can remember what Stanley Baldwin looks like, so it doesn't. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, Ma- Manvin, Manvin, which one? If you had to look down the list, which one would you buy? 
Oh, God, probably Churchill, because he's the only one who does really obviously look like who it's supposed like to be. Jug. Although I'm very interested in the sort of person who buys a Toby jug. Manby Rana from the Stories of Our Times podcast and Matthew Paris. Of course, you can read him in The Times. And you can read the stories we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. And don't forget to subscribe to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Sir Richard Dearlove. 45 Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So Richard Dearlove joined MI6 back in 1966. He was posted to Nairobi, Prague, Paris, Geneva, Washington, D.C. And then in 1999 became chief of MI6, or otherwise known as C, where uh, he remained until 2004. And he joins me now. So Richard, let's go, let's start right at the back, back at the beginning, if you like. What first drew you to MI6? Were you drawn to it, or did you get the sort of famous tap on the shoulder? Well, in 1966, you got the tap on the shoulder. I don't think it was possible to want to join. Uh, you, you wouldn't have known where to start. So I got uh, approached uh, as I was leaving Cambridge University. In fact, I was originally going to do a PhD or take a job as a clerk in the House of Commons. Really? Uh, and I got persuaded to switch my civil service application to joining MI6, which, if you're a very young man, looked like a very exciting and enticing prospect. And was it? Did it live up to your expectations? Was it all James Bond-esque, daring do, or was there a different side to it? I think it's true to say there was a different side to it, but I think I can honestly say, and not many people can say that about their careers, I never had a boring day at work in 38 years. Uh, And the, the variety the intensity, the feeling that you were doing something important. Um, no, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. Let's get the James Bond stuff out of the way, because that's what people will think, MI6. Is it anything like that? Like the, whether it's the original books or the films that we see now? 
No, not really <laughs> at all. Uh, I mean, the only thing which perhaps is important in the Bond franchise, and it is a franchise, and the Bond uh, sort of world, is it's probably made British intelligence, or I should say the Secret Intelligence Service, to use its proper title, or MI6, uh, probably the most well-known and famous intelligence organization in the world. Therefore, there's a sort of mythology and a drawing power that the service enjoys, which is partly based on its fictional reputation. And is that a positive or a negative, being so well-known and, and having this sort of celebrity cachet? I think overall it's probably positive because people who want to spy for whatever their motivation might be are, are, are drawn, drawn to the brand. Yeah because of its reputation so it does in a I, I wouldn't like to say this is important but it's a factor yeah. which probably you have to take account of so what makes a good spy or a bad spy well wait a moment you've got to get your terminology right i was never a spy i was a spy master or an intelligence officer spies are the people who work for you and they often, for one side or other, you know, in an ideological battle, they're involved in a betrayal, probably. And when you're recruiting them, what are you looking for? Access. And what I mean by that is you don't get involved with people who don't have access to the secrets that you're trying to obtain. So, I mean, in the Cold War, it's very clear-cut. Uh, you, you were looking for... Soviet Warsaw Pact officials who understood the secrets of that ideological group. Is it harder today because our enemies, our allies are less clear-cut and actually today, well, there's clearly Russia but over the last decade or so there have been attempts to bring Putin in, you know, similar with Iran, with China. Is it the question of who are our enemies and therefore who we are spying on more complicated than it used to be? I don't think it is now. There might have been a period at the end of the Cold War when the clarity was less evident. But I think, you know, since the war in Ukraine started in 2014, I go back even earlier than that, it was clear that Russia was still not by any stretch of the imagination a friend of the West. And I think similarly, you know, our views on China have been through a process of mutation and adaption. And you have the head of the security service MI5 recently standing up publicly saying China was probably the most important threat at the moment to our national security so you get it very very clearly stated and I think that's been repeated publicly by the head of GCHQ as well. Let's take those in turn then the situation in Russia which clearly you know you were you were um, product of the Cold War you were a foot soldier in the Cold War what should we be doing about Putin now or is the problem we're in the product of not doing something about him sooner well I think you can look back and say that the policy that Obama followed in 2014 when uh, there was this initial Russian invasion um, of bits of Ukraine Crimea in particular the way that this was handled with the benefit of hindsight, was probably a mistake. It's very easy to say these things after the event. 
and the West's inactivity, its, its lack of response clearly encouraged Putin in his larger plans, you know, then to have a major invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. But uh, there's no question at the end of the Cold War we made a serious attempt you know, to have a different relationship with the Russians, to have a dialogue with them, and for a very brief, there was a brief window, particularly after Putin was elected and Tony Blair went to Moscow, I went to Moscow several times, um, and we had a dialogue with the Russians, but it wasn't sustained. It, 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 it went wrong pretty quickly. And actually, by the time I retired in 2004, my last visit to Moscow was a pretty frosty and difficult affair. By then, things had happened. There were sort of specific issues at the time which became major irritants in the relationship between the United Kingdom and Russia. And similarly, the Americans had a similar experience. What does that frostiness, how does that manifest itself? Were you meeting Putin then or were you sort of meeting your Russian... Well, I mean, in previous visits, one had had a very high level access and very interesting meetings and conversations, which were unique because, you know, none of us had had that experience during the Cold War. But the last time I went to Moscow, you know, you could feel the doors were closing and that you were not welcomed in the same way as one had been. And... Uh, although we had this relationship and we had a dialogue which we were trying to make it work, it didn't really produce anything. So, and the Russians are quite good at sending messages <laughs> <laughs> with, without actually being rude to you, but my last visit was not an easy occasion at all. What, what happens next, do you think, with, with Russia? Can Putin be beaten? Or is this, this war, this invasion of Ukraine, going to be the... the long slog that everyone hoped it wouldn't be, what, 12 months ago? Well, I think it's very difficult to make a prediction at this point in time. I think it's very important that Ukraine emerges from this war, having regained its territory. I mean, bear in mind we're talking about naked aggression and Russia taking the territory of another country, whatever the historic relationship between Ukraine and Russia may be. So victory really would be for Ukraine to regain most, if not all, of its territory that Russia has occupied. And I think from the point of view of European security, this for the Ukrainians is not you know, a specially, special military operation. This, this is a European conflict of real significance. And I think it's important that Ukraine comes out of this having regained, I don't think you should talk about, you know, victory, that you, you, having regained its own territory, having regained its own country. And I mean, Zelensky's made a pretty clear statement about what the preconditions for an ending of the war are. And I think that there's, there's no way yet that the Ukrainians are prepared to compromise on any of those conditions. And what do you say to those people who say, well, actually, that's not, that's not realistic you need to talk about a settlement uh you know you need to come to some sort of peace compromise with with china that actually britain is not the all-powering global power that it was and therefore we need to be willing to to do deals to compromise it's too early to uh consider what those deals what the compromise might be if it's ever going to be acceptable to the ukrainians i mean the ukrainians militarily feel that they can still as it were regain territory uh okay there may come a point at the future where it's a frozen conflict and you're beginning to look towards some sort of 
diplomatic solution, armistice line, um, some sorts of compromise. But there's no way at the moment, I mean, I've just been in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are absolutely clear-cut. And I think if we continue to sustain them militarily, they have the creativity, they have the dynamism um, to certainly uh, recapture significant amounts of the country which are occupied by the Russians at the moment. And I think it's very, very important that you know, we sustain them during the conflict. You know, there are concerns and worries like the threat of maybe a Trump administration coming back as a result of the next presidential election. And we've all seen the polls that tell us that Trump is maybe the front runner and, and may well be in the lead politically. And Trump's saying, oh, I could solve the problem in 24. What he means is if we cut off supplies to Ukraine, Ukraine will have to compromise. Uh, that's pretty worrying. I, I don't think it, the threat is quite that blunt. But on the other hand, it does put the Ukrainians under pressure militarily to make significant progress before November 2024, when I think, is that the date of the election? It is the date of the election, yeah. And in terms of moving slightly away from the, sort of the international threats, in terms of the threats posed to the UK more directly, uh, for a long time, that was seen through uh, uh, jihadism, Islamic terrorism. Mm. And there's been this shift in recent years to increasing concern about right, homegrown right-wing terrorism. Do you think we're getting that balance right between where those threats are? Well, there's still a terrorist problem, clearly, although we haven't had any major incidents in the UK for a certain amount of time, whether it's from Islamist extremism or from the right. I mean, personally... I think that the, you know, the, the Islamist extremist threat is still the serious threat. And the other has been you know, not so much organised conspiratorialists, ind unhinged individuals who've taken desperate measures, de desperate acts. But I mean, I, clearly now there's a sort of rebalancing of what we think are the security problems. And, you know, we're, we've, we've moved back into a situation where geopolitics maybe plays a more important role when the threat of terrorism was, was forward and front and the most important thing, or seemed to be the most important thing. So the issue of, you know, China and China's behaviour within the international system, the issue of Russia and the destabilisation of European security. I mean, we can't sort of abstract ourselves in the UK from, from the big issues of European security. We've always been one of the most significant European powers, and whatever may have happened to the UK, we may Maybe a diminished power, but we're still a very, very significant player when it comes to European security, quite apart from the fact that despite the reduction in our armed forces, they're still very important in the European context, and we are certainly the intelligence and security leader in Europe. So all these factors, uh, historically, of course, you know, they have a basis, a long basis in history, mean that we're inevitably going to play a major role and there's a major European security crisis. I mean, this is very serious. It's a major war on the European continent. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 the most serious conflict since World War II. In terms of the sort of domestic threat, I think it was two years ago, almost this month, I spoke to Ken McCallum, the head of MI5. And it was as we were coming out of the pandemic and there was this concern that actually basically during lockdown, people would have spent a lot of time online possibly being radicalized so far at least touch wood i suppose if that's the right phrase that hasn't materialized as far as we know or maybe the security service has done a good job of 
catching them. Yeah, I think that the security service, you know, one ought to recognise, I mean, how, how much experience it's gained in dealing with radical extremism. And uh, I think, you know, the trouble is we don't hear, we hear about their failures. Yes. <laughs> we hear little about their successes. I think they've done a great job in holding the problem at bay. It doesn't mean there isn't still a problem there. But there's no question that the terrorist threat has been displaced by the war in Ukraine. And I think the U war in Ukraine comes at the forefront of our concerns from a security point of view. But it maybe it's not a very clever quotation, but it's worth making. You know, people have said, well, you know, Russia's bad weather, China's climate change. So, you know, China in the background may, may be the bigger and more serious problem because, of course, it's a growing economic power which is moving from being a regional power to a superpower whereas there's no question that you know what we're witnessing in russia is a serious mm. decline uh, i mean it's the end of you know russia's imperial ambitions if you wish to put it that way i mean the soviet union broke up and it's suffering you know a severe case of what i would call post-imperial anxiety about its identity about its political role and in a way, you know, the importance of Russia was only sustained in European terms. Well, partly because, of course, it's sophisticated missile armaments mm. and the fact that it's a nuclear power. But uh, the way that Germany in particular had allowed Russia to become such an important source of energy supplies. Yeah. You mentioned a moment ago that Britain was slightly diminished on the world stage. Uh, and some people would say that's that's in part because of Brexit. You supported Brexit. Obviously, since then, it probably hasn't helped the domestic political turmoil that yeah, we've had. Well, this is, you know, obviously, reputationally, that's damaged us. But on the other hand, I think, you know, if you look at the, uh, what I describe as Britain's soft power, its cultural reach, its linguistic reach, um, its role within what I would describe as the Anglosphere, its connections with the Commonwealth... Um, it's still a significant economic power. Uh, and I don't think that Brexit has very changed very much. Um, the trouble is it's hard to make a judgment because it's overlaid, you know, with the pandemic and political crises and all the other things that have happened. Um, but we still play a significant role. And, OK, one doesn't want to overemphasize that or make more of it than we should but on the other hand if you take Ukraine I mean the fact is that you could argue that we were very fast into the mm -hmm. field and that if we hadn't um, equipped Ukraine and trained them with the use of these end-law anti-tank weapons it's quite probable that um, you know Kiev would have been overrun and the Russians would have obtained their primary objective which was to knock the Iranian well, government over in in two weeks and you know no one would have noticed it would have all been over and it would have been too late to do anything about it so you could argue that we yeah. played it and we were not restrained by having to coordinate on common security <laughs> common foreign and security policy with the EU you know waiting for the Germans and the French who were very very slow to react yeah, yeah. In terms of that, that political instability, obviously the, the whole time you were in the security service, there were two elections in a year and chopping and changing prime ministers and so on. What impact does that have on the role of the security services? Do your allies around the world, your, you know, your spies, your oper operatives, does that affect your ability to do what you're trying to do internationally if Britain is looking wobbly at home? Well, maybe it has some effect. But I think that, 
you have to understand the sort of institutional stability and security which you know continues and we have you know a tradition of crown servants of serving the government which is in power whatever its complexion and i think you know a lot of what one might worry about just goes on in the background i mean the army is still training the intelligence service is still working hard it's still got serious you know there's a whole process of you know setting intelligence requirements fulfilling them reporting on the material and okay if you if you have an unstable period politically it doesn't make life easier and it might in some instances really complicate issues but on the whole i mean like i got asked a question earlier today about biden's attitude to the united kingdom and you know his sort of what i would describe as misunderstanding of the irish situation being an old irish catholic family and i don't think he he really appreciates the subtlety and difficult difficulty of irish history and i said well yeah but on the other hand you know the special relationship the institution of british and american intelligence working together a lot of that just carries on and the, you know the political weather doesn't necessarily affect it it might occasionally and w- would a would a trump presidency affect it because there was lots of talk about what we would and wouldn't share with them when he was president well i you know obviously i don't know because i'm not in office any longer yeah. but i doubt that the trump presidency really affected the special relationship i bet you it went on despite <laughs> despite, <laughs> despite trump because you know there was still a massive number of issues on yeah. which we agreed okay yeah. we may not, we you know the, the diplomats might have disagreed with his policy approach to north korea but i mean the fact that trump called out china mm-hmm. and led to a policy reassessment of how to deal with china i think that has been an important development he also was quite quick to blame china for leaking the covid uh, virus the coronavirus but was dismissed quite a lot but you you're you're now convinced well, that's think, probably what happened i think that the weight of opinion now yeah. is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is a chimera it's man-made i'm not suggesting that it was deliberately released i'm suggesting that it was an accident i think if you speak to scientists who really understand this the chances of it being zoonotic are about 100,000 to 1 but of course the chinese narrative is that it is zoonotic and a lot of people have heard the narrative and you can't prove the narrative is rubbish i mean there is a chance yeah. that their narrative is correct but all the virologists and scientists that i know from early stage if you look at the rna of the virus it's got s- such peculiarities that it looks as though these are human inserts and an adaptation of a virus which were the result of experiments but i mean the irony is that the work being done in the wuhan institute was actually being financed by the americans <laughs> so the, the the whole issue is quite sensitive and quite difficult to look into but i'm certainly of the view and i think now many 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 i was one of the first people to say this out loud and was accused of being a conspiracy theorist i think i have the satisfaction now of being probably proved right and uh, you know many many serious scientists would take exactly the same view as me um, and say well it, we can't prove it but the evidence strongly suggests the following we've had a bit of a tour of the world while we've been chatting if you were a young mi6 officer now which part of the world would you most want to be posted to well i 
probably would stick with where I started, <laughs> which is Russia, because yeah. I'm more interested personally in European security and I'm not an Asian mm. expert. But on the other hand, of course, China is absolutely fascinating and the international security system as it's being remolded will depend on some sort of accommodation between the United States and China. I mean, Pax Americana, the global security system which prevailed after World War II, clearly is on its way out. But we have to discover a way to live and work with China, which we haven't, or they haven't discovered yet, and we haven't discovered yet. So we're going through this tricky, tricky period, and a very sensitive period because of issues like Taiwan. So I, I personally, because my interests are oriented towards Europe, I would be looking at Europe and looking at Russian security and what's happening in Central Europe. But I'm sure that a lot of younger people will be thinking about Asia, will be thinking about the role of China, will be thinking about our new and burgeoning relationship with Japan and you know how AUKUS actually works out and develops. Uh, final question, because I, I feel like I've always got to ask this when I speak to someone from the security system. What was your favourite gadget? My favourite gadget? <laughs> you must have had gadgets. Don't tell me you didn't even have gadgets. Of course we had gadgets, but um, I would be indiscreet if I told you which ones, <laughs> which ones I used in anger. And that's all we've got time for my chat with Sir Richard Dearlove. I actually caught up with him at a really nice event this week for the Spinal Muscular Atrophy UK charity, SMA UK, where he was speaking. It was a really nice evening. Really fascinating chat with him. We raised a fair amount of money for charity as well. So that was really nice. Right, thanks very much for listening to the podcast today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Drop me an email, matt at times.radio if you want to have a moan about something. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, is goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.